this is going to be the last video for the time being in the little series that I'm doing where I am reading excerpts from my books. This one today will be from the eye of the beholder and uh, please stay to the end of today's video for an important announcement, which I've also put on Facebook. Uh, next week's video, we'll start with on some new topics and I'll give some of what those are going to be at the end of today's video as well. <clears throat> Today, I'm addressing the claim that Jesus sounds too different <clears throat> in the Gospel of John from the way that he sounds in the Synoptic Gospels and he looks too different and it just, it's a different Jesus, this idea of a Yohanin Jesus. Now there's a lot to say about that. I have many chapters that address that, but here I'm specifically showing parallels between the way that Jesus talks and the way that his mind works between John and the synoptics across the Gospels. And that's important because we, we want to get that idea that if you were with Jesus, if you knew Jesus, <clears throat> you would recognize him. In all of these, you would say, yeah, that, that's what he was like. What was it like? What was he like? What was it like to know him? And this critical claim of the different Jesus in John is very strong in a debate that I did with uh, Dr. Craig Evans in May of 2018. He specifically said, you have virtually nothing except for a few verses in Matthew. Those are sometimes called the Yoanian Thunderbolt that uh, sound like the Yohanin Jesus in the synoptics. And I have page after page after page in this book, The Eye of the Beholder, that refutes that statement that you have virtually nothing, just that exception uh, that sounds like the Yohanin Jesus in the synoptics. So I think that's important. It's important to hit that. So I'm going to start reading here on page 379. And I think you'll see why I've called this video only one Jesus. This is from the chapter called The High Resolution Jesus, which is the last full chapter of The Eye of the Beholder. Chapter 5, Section 2, provided positive evidence that John is scrupulous in recording what Jesus said and distinguishing it from his own interpretations. Chapter 6, refuting the myth of Jesus as John's sock puppet, explored some of the parallels between the way that Jesus talks in John and the synoptics. There we examine Jesus' use of concepts like bearing witness, his being said by the Father, and eternal life. But that was only the beginning. There is a weighty mass of evidence showing overlap between Jesus' specific modes of speech and thought in the synoptics in John. Stanley Leaves, a 19th century English theologian, provides many pages of tabulated parallels in Jesus' thought and language across the Gospels in the witness of St. John to Christ. Anyone who works in Johannine studies should read and ponder that section of Leaves' book, here I will include a number of these parallels with relatively little commentary in order to give the reader a sense of how exaggerated the claim is that there is a vast difference between the way Jesus talks in John and the way he talks in the synoptics. No one who reads these pages can come away saying, as Evans does, that aside from a few exceptional verses in Matthew, there is virtually nothing in the synoptics that sounds like Jesus in John. When I refer here to Jesus' thought, I do not mean something vague. I mean particular concepts that his mind turned to. The fact that we find multiple indications of these same mental habits in a variety of contexts indicates that all of the Gospels are accurately reporting real historical events and sayings. As I said in chapter 6, we should reject a critical attempt to dismiss these parallels as John's unhistorical reworking of synoptic tradition 
<clears throat> such an approach would be an ad hoc attempt to retain the theory of John's historically altered portrait of Jesus in the face of counter evidence. Critical scholars' own complaint is that Jesus in John allegedly sounds too different from Jesus in the synoptics, that we find virtually nothing that sounds alike. But if John and the synoptics record Jesus speaking similarly on what appear to be different occasions, the reasonable conclusion is that John and the synoptics are historically in touch with the same man who had a tendency to say the same kinds of things at different times because that was how his mind works. To treat similar sayings on different occasions as the same logion that has been moved without historical warrant is implicitly question-begging against the proposition that John visibly portrays the same Jesus that we find in the synoptics. If every similarity of concept and language, even when apparently occurring in explicitly different settings, is put down to non-historical reworking of common source material, we blind ourselves to those natural overlaps of linguistic and conceptual style that occur when the same person is portrayed truthfully in different documents. And this, by the way, is what I've called elsewhere, also in the book, uh, Heads John Loses, Tails John Loses. So if Jesus says something that sounds different in John from the synoptics, the critical scholar says, see, it's not, it, it's not portraying the same person in a historically fully accurate way. John is modifying the way that Jesus talks and presents himself. Uh, significantly modified more than the synoptics. But if, on the other hand, we find very similar ways of talking and thinking, then the critical scholar says, ah, John had access to the same logion, and then he makes up a new context or setting for it. He moves it uh, historically. So no matter what John does, they're not going to acknowledge, oh, that is counterexample. And I guess uh, that does actually look like the same guy who thinks in the same way. I begin each example with a quotation from a synaptic gospel, or more than one, and follow it with something remarkably similar from John in a different setting. Sometimes the same verbal or conceptual pattern appears more than once either in John itself or in the synaptics themselves. That is particularly interesting, since it gives us reason even within a given gospel to believe that this type of saying was a favorite with Jesus. Every Johannine example in the following list comes from material unique to John. So what I'm talking about when I talk about it appearing twice within the same uh, gospel, like twice in John or twice in the synoptics, but in different settings, is that that shows already, even if you just take one side of the John or synoptics parallel, that he was using it more than once, that he was... Um, just tended to talk this way. And so that's important evidence too, especially given this attempt to set John and the synoptics against one another. All right, I'm gonna just read a few of these and then uh, read a couple pages from a slightly different section. A, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you, Matthew 7, 7, setting Sermon on the Mount. Compare, until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full, John 16, 24, setting farewell discourse. This saying in John is especially noteworthy because of the verbal similarity between ask and it will be given to you and ask and you will receive. John evidently learned the lesson well and repeats it in his epistle. So I've got a couple references from 1 John to the same idea, but it is not a Johannine teaching as opposed to a synoptic one. B. Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Mark 5:36, setting, raising of Jairus' daughter. Also, then, different story in Mark. All things are possible to him who believes. Mark 9, 23, spoken to the father of a demoniac boy. Compare. 
Jesus said to her, Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? John eleven forty, setting, raising of Lazarus. Jesus alludes here to his question to Martha, do you believe this? After he said, I am the resurrection and the life in 11, 25 and 26. Asking the relatives of a sick or dead person if they believe and reassuring them by urging them to believe appears to have been one of Jesus' motifs. So there you go. It's the same guy. C. Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And this is from the raising of Jairus' daughter. It's found in all three of the synoptic accounts. Compare. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. John 11, 11 to 12. That's, of course, just before the raising of Lazarus. And in the Jairus case, that people laugh at him. Note that in both of these cases, Jesus' use of sleep to refer to death is not understood. While the term is clearly a euphemism, the apostle Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Thessalonians 4, and has an Old Testament background, Daniel 12, 2. Both the synaptics and John show that it was not so common that others understood it immediately. Perhaps this was because Jesus used it in a comforting way. So, you know, Daniel isn't, it's not especially comforting you that this person is just asleep. Jesus' idiom, which the early church may have adopted, attested in Paul, emphasizes the temporary nature of death. D. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Matthew 10, 24-25, studying the commissioning of the twelve. Compare. Now, I'm going to two verses from the farewell discourse separated by several chapters in John. Verily, very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. John 13, 16, setting last supper, spoken apropos of the foot washing. So there, a servant is not greater than his master, so they should wash each other's feet. But then later, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. John 15, 20, also farewell discourse. Notice that the context in John 15, 20, as in Matthew 10, 24 to 25, <clears throat> is persecution rather than mutual service. It is thus different from the context in John 13, 16. A reasonable conjecture is that in John 15, 20, Jesus is not, or at least not only, reminding them of his earlier saying that same evening. He may be reminding them of his saying on a different occasion about persecution as recorded in Matthew. E. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10, 37 to 39, commissioning of the twelve. But then we also have it also in Matthew. So this is one of these where even Matthew shows similar sayings on more than one occasion. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, 24 to 25. It's also found in Mark 8. Jesus has begun to foretell his own death in Galilee prior to his final trip to Jerusalem. Compare. Okay. John. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. John 12, 23 to 26, the setting, he's speaking to the crowd during Passion Week in Jerusalem. Compare also Matthew 10, 32, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. In the passage spoken in Passion Week in John, Jesus brings together the ideas of being willing to lose one's life and being with him, both in his death, which is a somewhat ominous being with him, and in gaining honor from the Father. <clears throat> in these three passages put together, we see that Jesus tended to repeat the saying about saving one's life in losing it. We find it twice in Matthew itself and once in John, all in apparently different settings. This is the kind of thing one would expect to come from witnesses of the same person who gave the same important teaching at different times and places. Now I'm going to go over so then there's more pages of this in the book. Several more pages. And now I'm going to go over to a section beginning on page 391 called Witty Jesus. This is a short section. Luke's Gospel and John's Gospel give two different stories that portray an apparent similarity in Jesus' teaching. The incidents took place in different places and concern entirely different healings. Yet the mind of the man is so obviously the same in both cases as to leave no reasonable doubt, increasing our confidence in the historicity of both. In Luke 13, 10 through 17, Jesus heals a woman with an affliction that makes it impossible for her to stand up. He heals her on the Sabbath, and this causes a dust-up, as is so often the case. The ruler of the synagogue, perhaps afraid to tackle Jesus directly, launches into a lecture to the people standing around, scolding them, probably scolding the woman as well, for coming to be healed on the Sabbath. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Verse 14. This is so dense. You know, I mean, this woman's just been healed. Maybe he thinks it was a fake. I don't know. But that you would choose that moment to lecture them. This, as you can imagine, does not go over well with Jesus. And he shoots back. Luke 13, 15 through 17. You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. What no doubt added to the piquancy of Jesus' victory over the pretentious synagogue official was the very Jewish play on words. Jesus' opponents will untie an animal on the Sabbath to lead it to water, but they attempt to forbid his untying this daughter of Abraham on the Sabbath, though she has been bound by disease for 18 years. Now compare the account of a completely different episode in John. In John 5, 1 through 18, Jesus heals a crippled man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. He tells him to take up his pallet and walk. Subsequently, the Jewish leaders complain, both because the man has performed work by carrying his pallet on the Sabbath and because Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. Jesus, so far from trying to calm them down, implies his equality with the Father and the Father's approval of his miracles in verse 17, which only makes them angrier and more determined to kill him. Commentators and harmonists are divided as to the time of year when this healing took place. John 5.1 says only that Jesus was in Jerusalem for a feast, but does not specify which one. In John 7, 1-10, Jesus returns to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is celebrated in the autumn. 
it's hard to tell exactly how much time passes between the healing of the lame man in John 5 and the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7. But at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus mentions the event and it's to the people and expects at least some of them to remember it. This is John 7, 21 through 24. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Here, on the same topic, but in an entirely different incident, is the same turn of thought and the same rhetorical flair and savage wit found in Luke 13, 15 through 17. If the eighth day of a boy's life happens to fall on the Sabbath, the rabbis approve of circumcising him in order to keep the law. The commandment of circumcision overrides the commandment not to work on the Sabbath. By the way, we have independent, uh, very uh, clear confirmation of this rabbinic ruling in the Talmud, so that's an external confirmation. It is permitted to make a child's body unwhole on the Sabbath. Jesus is not condemning circumcision, nor even per se the exception for circumcising on the Sabbath, but pointing out an irony. When Jesus made a man's entire body whole on the Sabbath, they raised an objection and became angry. Just as in the story of the woman bound by illness, so here, Jesus, Jesus shows the hypocrisy of the rulers in objecting to his healing on the Sabbath, and he does so by a play on words. The play there was on loosing the animal and loosing the woman. The play here is on making whole and circumcising. This is the stamp of a single human mind. Okay, that's the end of the reading from John, uh, the eye of the beholder. This stuff is so important. When you recognize that unity of mind, it's the same guy. Look, it's the same guy. That's the way he liked to do. That's the way he liked to teach. That's what it was like to be with him. Then all the talk about the Jesus of John and the Jesus of the synoptics, it just kind of falls to the side. It's overwhelmed. The evidence is just overwhelming of the unity of that personality of Jesus and that mode of thought and even modes of speech and concepts and all of that in the different gospels. Beside that, uh, you know, oh, Jesus in John uses Kai more often, the Greek connective, you know, instead of de or something. Well, you know, they may have both been translations from the Aramaic anyway in various places, but this is trivial by comparison to the the unity that we see in both speech and thought and personality in all four Gospels, that it is only one Jesus. Now, come back next time. I'm going to start doing other things, kind of miscellaneous things. I'm hoping to do uh, one video on a couple little probabilistic issues related to our older Blackwell paper, one probabilistic issue in particular. Uh, I may do a short video on what I think about the synoptic problem. I've set the record straight on that repeatedly, but there are still some misconceptions about that out there. Um, I have a new undesigned coincidence I'd like to talk about. I have a, a new area of reconcilable variation that I've written about some time ago in a blog post, but I have more to 
add on that. So we got great stuff coming up. Be sure to like and subscribe to this channel. And now for an important announcement, which I recently put on Facebook, DeWard Publishing, my publisher, hopes to have the Kindle version of The Eye of the Beholder available by October 1st. So if you've been waiting for the Kindle version, or if you would just like to have it in Kindle as well as in paper, uh, be sure to follow my Facebook page for the announcement of that and just to keep your eyes open for that because I really am hopeful that that will come out in Kindle on October 1st. That was my important announcement. Like and subscribe and hit the bell and we will see you next time here on the Lydia McGrew channel where we're making common sense rigorous.